Okay, good morning, everybody, again. Today our topic is going to be examination, and it's going to kind of tie in with uh, the exhortation that we heard last night. And I might add that I, I think that all of our classes and exhortations have been very beneficial so far this week, and, I, and I'm praying and hoping that the rest of them will too. This morning we saw, before I start with our exhortation, this morning we saw in Brother John's class and we saw in Brother Dave's class and heard examples of, and then our brother Jason this morning uh, uh, addressed us in regards to uh, corrupt communications coming out of our mouth. And I'd like us to open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 12. So please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 12, and we're going to start at verse 33 and read for through verse 37. Verse 33, either make the tree good and his fruit good, or else make the tree corrupt and his fruit corrupt, for the tree is known by his fruit. And this is where we get the common expression that the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is because as older people in the truth and as parents in the truth, it's up to us to set the example for our young people. Verse 34 continues and says, O generation of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaketh. A good man out of the good treasure of his heart bringeth forth good things. And an evil man out of the evil treasure bringeth forth evil things. But I say unto you that every idle word that men shall speak, they shall give account thereof in the day of judgment. For by thy words, and this is words that you can speak or words that you can type, by thy words thou shalt be justified, and by thy words thou shalt be condemned. Now last night, Brother Mac was telling us how to get off Facebook hit the delete button down on whatever phone application you have. And I might add that I'm not a technological expert, as probably some people in the audience can attest to. I didn't even know how to set my cell phone that I very seldom use. I had to have somebody else show me how to set it on vibrate. But I do read, and I read an article in the, in the March 24, 2011 uh, uh, Wall Street Journal. And it was a technology columnist, Walter S. Mossberg, and he answers readers' questions. And the question is, how can I permanently delete my Facebook account? And this was what he says on his answer. Facebook doesn't make it easy. The company tries to hang on to defecting users by promoting a halfway measure called deactivating an account, which merely hides you from the Facebook membership, but keeps your information on the social network servers in case you wish to reactivate later. This process can be performed with a few clicks. Facebook says this is the default choice because many users deactivate their accounts for temporary reasons and then wish to restore them. But permanent irreversible deletion of an account requires you to submit a request and wait for Facebook to act on it. The company deliberately delays acting on such requests in case you change your mind according to the site. And then there's details, and there's a website that's given. And what I'm going to do is post this if, with the permission of the Bible School Committee on the back of the bulletin board back there, and anybody can look at this website and jot it down 
if you're thinking of uh, deleting yourself permanently from Facebook. Last night, Brother Mack also said he was suggesting he's not, wasn't, whatever the word might be, telling people. Okay. He also said that we have to examine ourselves. So this morning we want to talk a little bit about examining ourselves. And some of the topic that I'm going to talk about is just in regards, the reason I'm talking about it is because it's just like technological things. There's a lot of older people and a lot of parents that don't understand what their children are doing. And so the topic that you're going to hear, you might think, well, I know all about that topic and why is he, why is he presenting that to us? But I've presented this a number of years ago to our young people in the class, some of the information, and I want to repeat it to our, our, our elderly people and our older people. So anyhow, examination is the topic of our class today, and God requires that each of us maintain a periodic program of self-examination. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 31 to 32, where it says, For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Well, when things are going well for us, we are not easily motivated to this activity. But when a major conflict arises and our spirit is grieved, we have the most effective motivation to search out the inner motives, the actions, the words, and the attitudes of our hearts. We read in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 27, The spirit of the man is the candle, or the lamp, as we know, of the Lord, searching all the inward parts of the belly. Well, this is precisely what God meant when he said, The reproofs of instruction are the way of life, as we read in Proverbs chapter 6, verse 23. And then as we read in Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The reproofs of instruction... Oh, or wait, it says, Whosoever loveth instruction, loveth knowledge, but he that hateth reproof is brutish. And then we're all familiar with Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, probably, where it says, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Well, honest self-examination is not easy, because we don't like facing up to our faults and our defects. However, God continues in verse 10 of Jeremiah chapter, chapter 17, where he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I try the reins, even to give every man according to his ways and according to the fruit of his doings. Well, this being the case, don't you think it behooves us to examine ourselves individually, to live and present ourselves in an acceptable way? Well, self-examination, there are many different questions that we can ask ourselves when we look at self-examination, and we hope to answer many of these questions in our classes over the rest of this week. The first question we might ask is, what is the root cause of our actions? The second question is, why do we behave as we do? The third question is, how can we change? And the fourth question is, what will be our reward if we change? And the fifth question is, 
what will be our punishment if we do not change? And finally, are the answers to these questions important? Are they important to each one of us individually? Honesty is the first quality necessary when we come to examine ourselves, and perhaps the first step is to take a look at humanity as a whole. Now, we all have great difficulty in understanding ourselves for what we truly are. As we try to look at ourselves, most of us are really looking for what we hope to find. We want to think of ourselves as respectable, decent, and good. In other words, deserving of the favor we would like to have in the minds of God and our fellow men. So the question we would like to ask this morning, is man basically good? Is man basically good? Well, I hope none of us think so. I think it is most important that we should understand what the Bible has to say about our origin and our nature and us. And the book of Genesis is about our origin and nature, as we're all familiar. And I can recall one of our elder sisters saying that it is telling me, telling me personally when I was a young brother in the truth, telling me that it was most important to have a good understanding of the first three of the book of Genesis. In these chapters, the Bible tells us clearly that man is a created being, that he depends upon a creator for his very life. And we know from reading Genesis chapter 2 that Adam was told in the garden by God that if he disobeyed the commandment he had received, he would die. Well, God placed man and his helpmeet to dress and keep the garden. And they were given only one commandment, not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. In disobedience of this law, they would be condemned to death. And as we know, all of God's creation at this time was declared to be in a very good state, which, when you logically think about it, and logically speaking, would mean that the human pair were neither mortal nor immortal. They were not yet dying creatures, nor did they have eternal life. Yet, they may have received this divine characteristic if they had not disobeyed God's one commandment. Adam's state in the garden before the fall was one of peaceful tranquility with his creator, innocent of transgressions and free from association with sin. Adam was not yet a dying creature because he was not yet related to sin. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, we read that the wages of sin is death, and we know that Adam did disobey in sin, and this is the judgment that was pronounced upon him. And we read it in Genesis chapter 3, verse 19. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground, for out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. Well, death is a judgment for disobedience, the disobedience of Adam. And this judgment was passed on all of Adam's descendants. And we read about this in Romans chapter 5, verse 19. And I always like to carry in my Bible, and I would recommend it if people don't have it, I carry in my Bible, it's titled, this, this little pamphlet, The Imputation of Adam's Sin, a study of Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 19, by Brother Edward Fair. And I think that it's 
are something that you can refer back to quite frequently. When we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 19, it says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners. However, God laid out a plan of redemption for man. For we read in Romans chapter 5, verses 21, and let's turn to that. Turn back to Romans. Chapter 5, verses 15 to 21, where we read, But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many be dead, much more the grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man, Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one to condemnation. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Therefore, as by the offense of one judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so by the righteousness of one, the free gift came upon all men unto justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound. But where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. That as sin hath reigned unto death, even so might grace reign through righteousness unto eternal life by Jesus Christ our Lord. So how did we get to the point where most of the people in the world, and this is most of the people in the world, think that man is basically good. Well, we know that main philosophies have been brought, that have brought so much evil into our modern world stem from ideas generated from the French Revolution. And they were brought to fruition by the French Revolution. And these, in turn, began to focus on the hypocrisy of state religion and the established order of society. Now, Charles Darwin attacked the cherished teachings of Genesis through the unproven hypotheses of natural selection when he published his book on origins of species and his theory that man evolved from lower forms of life by natural selection. Now, I have recently, over the past year, had discussions with some women who believe in evolution and happen to be involved in academia. And these are the type of people that teach our children out in the world. These are teachers in our school system teaching our children and our young people. And it had been noted that some teachers, more specifically college teachers believing in a creator, have been fired because they brought up the topic of intelligent design in their classrooms. And one of the colleges involved was in Texas, and it was Baylor University, a supposedly religious school system. These ex-teachers, as well as prominent administrators and evolutionists, were interviewed. And Richard Dawkins, an atheist, and probably the most prominent evolutionist in the world today, was asked during an interview, when did life begin? And he could not give a good answer. And when asked about evolution, he stated that Crystals or aliens from outer space were probably responsible for man. 
Well, so much for science if we got to believe that there's crystals or aliens for outer space that are responsible for us being here. A question was posed by one of the women, one of the women that I was talking with, and she says, "Hasn't evolution proven that parts of the Bible are only myth?" Well, the answer is no. Evolution is a theory based on several man-made assumptions which by their nature are not capable of experimental verification. There is no scientific way to prove a theory on creation because creation is not a repeatable event. It only happened that one time. Since these assumptions which support the theory of evolution cannot be proven, they must be accepted by faith. Similarly, a believer of the Bible believes and understands through faith that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And then as we read in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 19 to 21, and, and verses 23 to 24, and you can turn to that. It says the following, The Lord by wisdom has founded the earth. By understanding hath he established the heavens. By his knowledge the depths are broken up, and the clouds drop down the dew. My son, let not them depart from thine eyes. Keep sound wisdom and discretion. And then skipping to verses 23 and 24. Then shalt thou walk in the way safely, and thy foot shall not stumble. When thou liest down, thou shalt not be afraid. Yea, thou shalt lie down, and thy sleep shall be sweet. Well, as a believer... A Christadelphian believes the divinely revealed account of creation given to man by the Creator Himself through Moses in Genesis chapter 1. Thus, the theory of evolution cannot disprove Genesis 1 since both must be accepted on the basis of faith. What do we read about faith in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, which was already read previously this week? And it's one of my favorite verses because it's one of the first rules of salvation, the first rules of salvation. It says, but without faith it is impossible to please him, for he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. And in a future class we're going to be talking about diligence. So the question is, do we put our faith in an unproven man-made theory, or do we put our faith in the God-given scriptures which Christ our Lord said in John chapter 10, verse 35, the scripture cannot be broken. Well, evolution is a philosophy of life. It allows the one who believes in it to be his own God and to believe that he is getting better and that he will be able to work out his own problems. And this is what Brother Dave was talking about this morning when he was talking about some of these programs that are out there in the workplace, and I could relate exactly to what he was talking about because I went through those in the workplace when I was working. Two verses from the Old Testament show how the erroneous philosophies such as evolution and humanism can lead to disregarding God's commandments and moral standards. Moses, when telling the Israelites before entering the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 9, says, for you are not as yet come to the rest and to the inheritance which the Lord your God giveth you. And then he said in verse 8, Ye shall not do after all the things 
that we do here this day, every man whatsoever is right in his own eyes. And then in Judges, we know that it says in Judges 21, verse 25, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And we're in that situation right now where everybody in the world does what they think is right in their own eyes. Therefore, evolution and humanism are to be considered foolishness of the world, which we should desire no part of. Now, most people believe that evolution is built on scientific fact. And I like to tell those, and especially these women that were espousing evolution, that I have a biology book that I had as a sophomore in high school, and that was many years ago. And there's a section in it on evolution that has pictures and explanations of the Java man, the Heidelberg man, the Pit Down man, the Pekang man, and the Neanderthal man. And except for the Neanderthal man, all have been found to be fakes, some with bone fragments from pigs, chimpanzees, and other animals. So, so much for facts and what's being taught in the school system. And I told these evolutionists that I was talking with that I've never seen proof of one species evolving into another, such as man from apes. And if they knew of one, to please tell me. Well, you know what? They have yet to tell me of any. Evolutionists are often guilty of choosing only those scientific facts which support their theory, ignoring those facts which contradict their theory. Well, the second law of thermodynamics is a good example. It summarizes the fact that in random motion on which evolution is based, things go from order to disorder, not from disorder to order. Evolutionists say, for example, that the solar system went from disorder to order. This contradicts a basic law of physics, if anybody knows anything about physics, which evolutionists have, been, have not been able to satisfactory answer. Yahweh says in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 12, I have made the earth and created man upon it. I, even my hands, have stretched out the heavens, and all their host have I commanded. And then in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 18, it says, For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God himself that formed the earth and made it, he hath established it, he created it not in vain, he formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Well, there currently is a film that is out that is called The Privileged Planet that shows the search for purpose in the universe and how our solar system with its complexities and order in it could only be created. And I think that the Kentucky Bible School showed it previously, so some of you may have seen it. There's copies were also available at the Forest Hill study day this year, and one of the sisters in our meeting in Dallas brought back some of these copies and gave it to us to take a look at. So the theory of evolution is built on the supposition that everything is improving. The fact is that everything in the universe is deteriorating. The bloodstream of each new generation is more and more impure and less resistant to various diseases. This emphasizes to me the fact that God made Adam and Eve with a pure blood stream. And that is why their sons and daughters 
could marry each other without the medical problems that we would have today. So we can see that the world today, the philosophical ideas of man have taken over the majority of the people. Today, everything hinges around the promotion of the rights of man to the exclusion of the laws of God. And these human rights have been dressed up to appear plausible and in some cases even, even championed as right and decent. All we have to do is just think about the law that was passed late last year in regards to homosexuals in the U.S. military. And there's a lot of other laws and a lot of other things that have been done to make things plausible and acceptable to the masses. So this is the shape of society that we have inherited. And the driving philosophy could be summed up in one word, and that's humanism. So what is secular humanism? Well, secular humanism excludes God. It makes man his own highest authority. It teaches that man's pleasure or happiness is the highest good. Moral standards are relative in humanism to the extent that they give way to situational ethics where people are able to justify their actions. And we've seen that many times in the past, in the last four or five years and even earlier. Humanism is being promoted in our day through false religions, cults, and godless philosophies. Magazines, movies, educational programs, and such like, which encourage immoral freedom without the responsibility of marriage, are promoting humanism. Just this week, in the local paper here, the Democrat, Arkansas Democrat, front page is talking about teens and extreme drinking. And if I had somebody in college right now, a young person in college that was in my family, I'd be showing them this article. Government programs which promise to solve social evils without God are humanistic programs. I have to laugh every time I see the commercial on about, hey, get your free cell phone, and they show a picture of an elderly couple that's in a kitchen that has all nice major appliances, and the elderly couple look like they're pretty well off, and the one says to the other, now I can call my grandson. Or they have another one where somebody's going to work and the guy says, well, now I can call work if I'm late. And so there's a government program that's out there where you can get 200 free minutes and a free cell phone. The American Humanist Association is a national organization founded in 1941 to promote humanism in the United States. So this isn't something that just isn't organized because it is organized. The AHA, the acronym for it, states the following, and I quote, this is exactly what used to be on their website. It's changed a little bit, but it's still there. Humanism is a way of living, thinking, and acting that allows every individual to actualize his or her highest aspirations and successfully achieve a happy and fulfilling life. Humanists take responsibility for their own morals and their own lives, and for the lives of their communities and the world in which we live. Humanists emphasize reason and scientific inquiry. 
individual freedom and responsibility, human values and compassion, and the need for tolerance and cooperation. Humanists reject supernatural, authoritarian, and anti-democratic beliefs and doctrines. Humanism is a rational philosophy informed by science, inspired by art, and motivated by compassion. Affirming the dignity of each human being, it supports the maximization of individual liberty and opportunity consonant with social and planetary responsibility. It advocates the extension of participatory democracy and the expansion of the open society, standing for human rights and social justice, free of supernaturalism. It recognizes human beings as a part of nature and holds that values, be they religious, ethical, social, or political, have their source in human experience and culture. Humanism thus derives the goals of life from human need and interest rather than from theological or ideological abstractions and asserts that humanity must take responsibility for its own destiny. Unquote. That's directly taken from the AAH Charter, the American Humanist Association. So we see that humanism, humanism teaches that man is basically good. There is no future hope or accountability. Therefore, live the good life now. Get it while you can. It teaches that religion is irrelevant, illusory, and harmful. It teaches that all moral opinions are of equal value. Hey, it's a democracy. We can't tell somebody what they can do or what they can't do. There is no absolute moral authority because morality is situational. It is what it is. Human experience, intelligence, and reason are the arbiters of right and wrong. The individual is the center of all importance. And man should not be restricted in any way. Humanism teaches submission to the will of God is unacceptable. It teaches thoughts and actions are not to be determined by any organization or authority. Well, probably most of us here are familiar with evolution and humanism. And so this subject may be redundant to many. However, I want you to know that this is what is being taught in our schools today. So we have to know how to respond and how do we fight this enemy. So how do we protect our families and our children from the destructive influences of humanistic philosophies? Well, I think there's maybe four ways and there's probably more. But I think first of all, we need to explain to our children what human philosophies are. And then we need to teach. The second thing is we need to teach your family how to detect them. And the third thing we need to do is we need to develop a godly contempt for them. And then the fourth thing I think that we need to do is we need to build a hedge, a hedge of prayer around each one in our families. We need to protect our entire family from the destructive influence of philosophies which exalt man and fail to honor God or and Christ. We need to memorize scripture, such as 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5. Let's turn to that. 2 
This is a very good, very good scriptures here. Second Corinthians chapter 10, verses 4 to 5. And the only way that you can do this is by internalizing scripture. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalteth itself against the knowledge of God and bringeth into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. We need to help our families to identify secular humanism. We need to quiz them. If you were asked to explain humanistic philosophy as a parent, or as a brother, or as a sister in Christ, what would you say? Would you be able to give the scriptural basis for godly contempt for man's wisdom? It probably wouldn't hurt if we read and discussed the following verses. And you can just write these verses down. You don't, we're not going to have to look them up in the, uh, because of time constraints. And I'm just going to give the guidelines. But Romans chapter 1, verses 20 to 32, it says, Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 to 31 Hath not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? And then 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 to 16. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. And 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 10 to 12. God shall send them strong delusion. And then 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 to 10. <coughs> ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 1 to 3 and, and, or, and verses 3 or chapter 3 verse 7. They speak great swelling words of vanity. And then Jude 4 20. Chapter or Jude verses 4 to 20 walking after their own lust. <coughs> so if we look at these verses, we can see that every wise parent or father will build a hedge of prayer around his family and will instill in the thinking of his family a godly contempt for secular humanism in all of its forms. And if he fails to do this, the humanistic philosophies of our day will teach his family to have an ungodly contempt for him, for him, and for the authority of the Bible. Well, we know from scriptures that man is not basically good. In fact, Jesus said the following about himself in Matthew chapter 19, verse 17, when he said, And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. However, God has been gracious enough to reveal to us all that we need to know in order for mankind to become good. 
according to God's standard of goodness in man. And he has done this through his written word that has been communicated to chosen men who lived in the past. So what has God chosen to tell us about ourselves? Well, he has told us that man is mortal, a creature of the dust. And we have many passages that confirm this. First, we have 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 47, where it says, The first man is of the earth, earthy. The second man is the Lord from heaven. Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And Genesis 3.19, In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return unto the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. And Job 33.6, Behold, I am according to thy wish in God's stead. I also am formed out of the clay. Genesis 3, verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him, talking about Adam, forth from the Garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. And Genesis 18, verse 27. And Abraham answered and said, Behold now, I have taken upon me to speak unto the Lord, which am but dust and ashes. And Job 4, verse 17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? And then Job 10.9. Remember, I beseech thee that thou hast made me as the clay, and wilt thou bring me into dust again? And then Psalm 103, verse 14. For he knoweth our frame, he remembereth that we are dust. Now do not forget that all this is said of man, not of the house or heaven, as many religions profess that man is supposed to dwell in for a time, as if man were one thing and his body another. It was the man that was formed out of the dust. It is the man that is of the earth, earthy. It is the man that is formed out of the clay. It is the man that is dust and ashes. Man who is mortal dies, and he's dead after he has died. And this death happens both to the good and to the bad man, the rich and the poor man. They all go to the same place. And that place is into the grave where they turn to dust again. Now we surely do not need to be told that this world contains many men who cannot in any reasonable sense be considered good. It's very clear to see. All we have need to do is to pay attention to what the daily news tells us of man's activities of the crime, the violence, and what is considered wicked, even by man's own established laws of right and decency. We are forced to conclude that some of these men and women have within themselves a strong or an even uncontrollable tendency to do evil. Well, are these people totally different from the rest of the human race? Or is the difference between them and the rest of humanity merely one of degrees? Some people would argue that would argue about this endlessly. Therefore, the best thing to do is to find out what the source of infinite wisdom has to say about man's real, true nature. And this source is obviously the one who made man. So let's hear what our Creator said. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 20, we read, 
For there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Well, this tells us that in God's estimation, we human beings are all sinners, all of us, to a greater or a lesser degree or extent. And this shows that sin is an inborn human tendency. Any mother knows that a tiny infant can become rebellious and even mean, requiring that it be taught not to resort to such behavior. Well, why is this rebellious tendency born into us? Well, we would not be able to know exactly, but for what our Creator has chosen to tell us in His Word. And the Bible tells us that our first parents, Adam and Eve, rebelled at God's specific and simple instruction, and because of their disobedience, they brought death upon themselves and upon all of the rest of us. But they brought more than death. They brought also the tendency to sin upon the whole human race. And God had to provide a special man, Jesus Christ, with the strength of character to overcome that tendency completely. And if we were looking at Romans chapter 5, or looking at the imputation pamphlet that Brother Ted Ferrer had written, we could read from Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 21, about being justified by faith, where we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you can read those verses at home or even here. Paul the Apostle testified of the unconquerable tendency to sin that was part of his bodily makeup. Even such a good and faithful man as Paul said in Romans chapter 7, verse 18, For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. And he further explained it in Romans chapter 7, verses 22 to 23, where he said, For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. And that's talking about Paul's enlightened conscience. But I see another law in my members, talking about his body, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law or the tendency or the urges of sin which is in my members. Well, was Paul hopeless in view of his inability to do all that he knew to be right? Far from it. As the last verse of this chapter 7 says, there is a deliverance from this body of death through Jesus Christ our Lord. God is merciful to unwilling sinners, such as Paul, such as ourselves, who will avail themselves of the offer of salvation that God has extended through his Son. However, though the offer is to all human beings, it will be effective only for those who repent of their sinful ways and make a covenant with God by first learning of his truth as set forth in the Bible, not as commonly distorted in the creeds of most churches and humanistic teachers, and then submitting to baptism into the name of Jesus Christ. While there is hope for all who approach God in the way that he has appointed, God said through the prophet Isaiah, 
And this will be our closing reading in Isaiah chapter 55, verses 6 to 9. And every time I see Darwin, he reminds me of an exhortation I gave back here about, Oh, all ye that thirst. It's free. It's available to all of us. But Isaiah 55, verses 6 to 9 says, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. While concluding this class, it is a fact that our human nature is not basically good, as we learned. But God is looking over the human race continually to find within those who, despite their weaknesses and their tendency to err or sin, seek to find God from his word and not according to how they might think God should be pleased with them. Even though God demands strict obedience to his commandments, he is merciful and forgiving of those who are diligently seeking to obey him. We shall ultimately, we shall ultimately be examined by the most penetrating, knowing and impartial judge of all, our Lord Jesus. When he examines us, it will be too late for any changes to be made. In the meantime, until that time, in other words, we have the golden opportunity to check the course we are steering. Remember that raging river that we talked about yesterday and what happens when a raging river gets over its bounds or over its containment uh, walls. It's not a pretty picture. So we have the opportunity to check the course we are steering and to take careful and take the called for corrective action before we make a shipwreck of our hope. As we examine ourselves, think about Psalm 4, verses 3 to 4, which states, But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. One final thing, if I can get a few more brothers to come up here. I passed this out to the young people a number of years ago, and it's titled, 20 Scientific Facts Seldom Taught to Students in Regards to Evolution, and it's from Creation, Evolution, and Science by John V. Collier. And so if I could get some to pass this out. This will conclude our class for the day, and again, I thank you for your attention.